You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In today's lecture, I would like to follow up on the lecture on the two main orders of the Counter-Reformation, the Jesuits and the Capuchins, and then to use that as a lead-in to a subject that was not much covered in the past, and that is the subject of sanctity or of sainthood. And in any treatment of the Counter-Reformation today, you will generally find a reference to the saints. And this is mainly because of the work of Evident, Delamo, and Bossy. And you will find it in our text. And in fact, there are chapters in the text that are relevant to what I will be talking about this morning. And they are chapters 2, 8, and 9. Chapter 2 is on the New Religious Orders, Chapter 8, Counter-Reformation Saints, Chapter 9 is Holy Women, Beatas, Demoniacs. But first, a word simply about the New Religious Orders. The Jesuits were a New Religious Order, the Capuchins were a reform of an old or an already existing order. And as Sia remarks on page 27 in our text, the Jesuits soon became the most important force in Catholic renewal. So the religious orders play a critical role in the renewal of the church through the program outlined by the Council of Trent and then by what we might call Tridentine bishops in their dioceses or sees. There were new religious orders besides the Jesuits. There were the Theotines and the Barnabites, who were founded earlier than the Jesuits and who were, like the Jesuits, essentially a group of priests living together in common, living a common or a religious life. In the 17th century, Especially in France, some new religious orders that sprang up were the Brothers of the Christian Schools, or popularly called the De La Salle Brothers in England, and here in the United States called the Christian Brothers. And St. Vincent de Paul founded his Congregation of the Mission, popularly known or best known in the United States as the Vincentians. And there was an order or a group of priests living together to educate candidates for the priesthood in the newly founded seminaries. And along with these new orders, there went a number of attempts to inculcate the program of Trent and to bring to fruition the program that was outlined by Trent. The one who was generally singled out in Italy as having attempted to make Trent a reality in the life 
of a particular region in the life of his diocese is St. Charles Borromeo. When he became the Archbishop of Milan, he was the first Archbishop to live there for some 80 years. And he is generally mentioned as the model Tridentine Bishop. There were other saints in Italy like Philip Neri, the Capuchin St. Felix of Cantalice. There was a constellation, as it were, of saints in the newly founded Jesuit order. And in Spain, there was renewal or revival or reform of some old orders. The Carmelite nuns by St. Teresa of Avila and the Carmelite friars, St. John of the Cross, the Franciscan friars by St. Peter of Alcantara, and there were many others. In 17th century France, the best known saints are perhaps St. Francis de Sales, St. John Baptist de La Salle, and St. Vincent de Paul. There were between the years 1540 and 1770, as Sia points out in our text, some 27 men and five women who were declared to be saints. And of the 27 men, six were Jesuits and five were Capuchins, and the overwhelming majority were religious, that is, members of a religious order. So when we study the phenomenon of sanctity, especially at the time or the period of the Counter-Reformation, what we are looking at is the sanctity produced by the old or the new religious orders of the Church. Some authors, when they come to the Counter-Reformation in the 17th century, refer to France or the situation in France as the flowering of the saints. In other words, what they see is that we had the Council of Trent, which outlined a program of reform and renewal or revitalization for the church. And there was a lead time necessary, a generation or a generation and a half before the decrees of Trent could come to fruition or take effect, or before men and women could see their effect or feel their effect in their own lives and see it in the lives of others. Now, one thing you may have noticed was that all the saints that I mentioned, with the exception of Teresa of Avila, were men. And in speaking of the religious orders, all the religious orders were orders of men, either laymen and priests living together as with the Franciscans or the Dominicans or the Carmelites, or essentially a group of priests living together as the Jesuits and the Barnabites or the Theatines, one of the new religious orders in Italy in the 16th century. And they all played a role in the life of the church and all contributed each in its own way and in some way to the revitalization of the church's life under the guidance or the aegis of the Council of Trent. Most of the new religious orders took as their model either knowingly or perhaps instinctively, we might say, the Jesuits, because the Jesuits were enormously successful and quickly had won for themselves a reputation of being 
as it were, at the point of attack, being in the forefront of renewal and what today we would call evangelization in the church. Now I would like to say something about this attempt to model oneself on the Jesuits or to point out something missing from the Jesuits that we would find, say, in previous religious orders and that some tried to make up on their own. And perhaps the best way to do it is to show how St. Ignatius and his order was a development in the life of religious orders in the church. Some might say an advancement, but at least it's a new form of religious life. Religious life had started originally in the desert and then came from the desert into the monastery. And then in the Middle Ages, went from the monastery out onto the streets and the town squares with the friars or the mendicant orders. And now in the 16th century with the Jesuits, we're going to see a new form of religious life or a new understanding of religious life and of what religious life meant and of what the men who vowed themselves to this life could do. Well, St. Ignatius broke with the traditions of religious life in the church in at least three ways. In other words, there are three things that we can pick which are external that differentiate or distinguish the Jesuits from other religious orders, the religious orders of the time. The first was that the Jesuits wear no distinctive religious habit, no distinctive garb as I am wearing. Their religious garb is simply the black soutane of the secular priest. St. Ignatius did not want his men to stand out by virtue of what they were wearing. A second distinguishing mark, as it were, of the Jesuits is that they do not recite the office in common, the divine office in common. Or you can say that there is no choral recitation of the divine office. This doesn't mean that they don't pray, it simply means that the Jesuits pray privately in their room or in the chapel on their own. And here St. Ignatius is in tune with one of the distinguishing characteristics or marks of counter-reformation spirituality, which is less accent or emphasis on the communal or the common and greater emphasis on the individual or private life, private devotions private prayers. Hitherto in religious life, it was just taken for granted that if a man or a woman was a religious, that they prayed the divine office together in the choir or the chapel of their convent, monastery, friary, or priory. And it was a solemn obligation laid upon all by virtue of the solemn vow that they took. St. Ignatius did not want his men to be tied to or obliged to do that. And he knew something of the history of religious life and that the divine office was sometimes a cause not of union but of division and that frequently when 
religious orders started to decay or to go into decline, one sign was that they were not being faithful to the office. St. Ignatius laid the obligation directly and squarely on the individual follower of his way of life. And finally, we might say there's a third distinguishing characteristic, or it's a characteristic in a special sense, there are no female Jesuits. There are female Dominicans, there are female Benedictines, there are female Franciscans, but there are no female Jesuits. And St. Ignatius wanted it that way, and he would not allow there to be any women associated with his religious endeavor. So we can say that there are three distinguishing characteristics of the Jesuits are no religious habit, no choral recitation, and no female counterparts. Now this does not mean that there were not some women who wanted to associate themselves with the Jesuits. There were. And I want to say a few words now about one of those women. She is the Englishwoman Mary Ward. And when we talk about Mary Ward, or really almost any religious woman in the 16th or the 17th century who is founding a new order, what we are dealing with is the vision that the woman has of religious life for her and for the women who would associate themselves with her in that form of religious life. And the second element is what the church required of any woman who entered religious life. Quite simply, it boils down to this. In the 16th century, it was assumed that any woman who entered religious life would be a nun and that all nuns were enclosed, that they were strictly enclosed, which means that they went into the monastery and stayed there. Or, to put it in modern terms, they did not have any active apostolate or ministry. In the Middle Ages, or up into the 16th century, it could have been said and was said that when a woman came to maturity, she had two choices facing her. In Latin, the phrase used to summarize these two choices is aut murus aut maritus, either the wall or a husband. In other words, she could enter religious life, become a nun, or she could marry and have a family. But it was just assumed and taken for granted that women did not have active apostolates or ministries. And the story of how women gained for themselves the right to apostolates and ministries, or the right not to be strictly cloistered or enclosed, was really played out in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. And most of the women in these times who wanted to be able to be religious also wanted to do good works. And most of them failed in their endeavor. Some succeeded partially, not completely. St. Angela Marisi, founder of the Ursulines, would fall in between a 16th century saint. In the 17th century, there was St. Jane Francis de Chantal. 
And in the early 17th century, there was this English woman, Mary Ward. She was from Yorkshire, and as a young woman, she entered and became a poor Clare. But then she had an ardent desire, not just to do good works, but to associate herself in some way with the Jesuits. She wanted, in fact, to use the Jesuit rule, to adopt the rules of the Society of Jesus, in other words, for her order. She wanted her sisters to be uncloistered nuns, to wear no distinctive habit, and to be mobile, that is, to be able to go about, not to be tied or vowed to life in one place or one house, and to be under a superior general. In other words, she was trying to set up a full-fledged female equivalent of one of the male religious orders, the Franciscans or the Dominicans or the Jesuits. The desires that I just mentioned, what Mary wanted, uncloistered, no distinctive habit, mobile, and under a superior general, certainly fit the Jesuits. And if we would drop the no distinctive habit, that's the friars, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Carmelites, the Augustinians. When Mary came forward with her proposals and her ideas, she was not well received. In fact, she was considered to be a dangerous woman, an innovator. And they were very wary of innovators, especially because of the Reformation. Many of the reformers, the Protestant reformers, were referred to as the innovators. And what Mary wanted was considered to be too radical. But she managed to get the approval of the Bishop of St. Omer, O-M-E-R, in 1612, and her order began to enjoy some success. But, as happens at times, she and her sister soon ran afoul of some ecclesiastical authority, and to make a long story short, they were suppressed in 1629, temporarily suppressed, and that suppression was made definitive in 1631. But even with this, Mary would not give up, and she managed to get permission for a few of her sisters to continue their way of life under private vows. When a religious makes a vow, it is considered a public act, just as your marriage vow is a public act. And the church has always recognized private vows, vows that have no public force or effect, as it were. And Mary gained permission for some of her sisters to live this way. And then she returned to England where she died in 1639, and to all intents, purposes, and appearances, Mary was a failure. But her institute carried on, or the women carried on with their private vows, and received final approbation or approval 
from the church for the work that they were doing, in other words, public recognition and public acknowledgement by the church, in 1877. Now, there were at least two things that militated against Mary and what she wanted to do. The first was that she wanted to be associated with the Jesuits and to use the Jesuit rules and regulations and also to use the Jesuit name. Now, some members of the society in the 17th century, true to the wishes and the intention of St. Ignatius, said that St. Ignatius did not want this and we don't want this. So they were opposed to the program that Mary was proposing. They were opposed to what she wanted to do. The other thing is that Mary was simply looking back, now we can see, ahead of her time. In some ways, St. Ignatius was ahead of his time, or frequently with the innovators, if they managed to have their way to do what they intend, they come in for severe criticism. It happened to the Franciscans and the Dominicans in the 13th and the 14th centuries. They were written against or opposed in varying degrees by the monks. In the 16th and the 17th century, the Jesuits were opposed because they were seen to be innovators in their way and doing something that was out of the ordinary or not in keeping with tradition. And the same thing happened to Mary Ward and her sisters. And with the perspective of time and of history, we can see that what Mary Ward and other women like her were trying to do was to win for themselves a place, a niche if you will, in the active ministerial apostolic evangelical life of the church. Another thing that worked against Mary and her intention was that she really wanted to use the Jesuit name. And that also was responsible for the Jesuit opposition. But sometimes you will see reference in books or elsewhere to the Jesuitesses or the Jesuitines. In fact, in English, the name for Mary's women is the English ladies. In German, the English Damen, and in French, Dame Anglaise or Jesuitine. And her enemies, those who were opposed to her, did the same thing to her that the enemies of the Jesuits did to them. They took the name and used it as a term of opprobrium or to help to do her in. They referred to her ladies as Jesuitesses. But the correct name in English for the women who follow Mary Ward or who take Mary Ward as their inspirer and foundress, the correct name is the English ladies. And the English ladies are active in the church today. I would like to talk about the fortunes of the Catholic or the Counter-Reformation forces or countries, and also in some way the fortunes of the Reformation forces. The Reformation was a spiritual movement, a movement to effect reform in the church. The Counter-Reformation was 
a spiritual movement also, reaching back before the Protestant Reformation, but definitely reacting to and being shaped or formed in some way by that Protestant Reformation. In other words, we have two spiritual forces at work and in conflict in the 16th and the 17th century. And the basic or the fundamental question that everyone asks is, who is going to win? Will the Catholic forces be triumphant or will the Protestant forces be triumphant? Will it be a Protestant theology or a Catholic theology? And if we lived in an ideal world, we could say that, well, the Protestant forces had this on their side, therefore they're going to win or they may win in certain places. On the other hand, the Catholic forces or Catholic theology is the true theology, therefore the truth will win out in the end. But we know that it did not work out that way because something else entered in, and that is the power of the state or power politics or simply politics. There's a very pertinent and relevant paragraph in R.R. Palmer's History of the Modern World, pages 95 and 96, and I would like to read a bit of it to you right now. In this paragraph, Palmer is telling how, say, Protestantism succeeded where it succeeded or how Catholicism succeeded. In other words, one of the things that helped them is this. In the machinery of enforcing religious belief, no engine was to be so powerful as the apparatus of state, of political sovereignty. Where Protestants won control of government, people became Protestant. Where Catholics retained control of governments, Protestants became, in time, small minorities. And it was in the clash of governments, which is to say in war, for about a century after 1560, that the fate of European religion was worked out. Now in 1560, we might say that circumstances favored, or certainly seemed to favor, the Catholic forces. This is Palmer again. In 1560, the strongest powers of Europe, Spain, France, Austria, were all officially Catholic. The Protestant states were all small or at most middle-sized. The Lutheran states of Germany, like all German states, were individually of little weight. The Scandinavian monarchies were far away. England, the most considerable of Protestant kingdoms, was a country of only four million people, with an independent and hostile Scotland to the north, and with no signs of colonial empire yet in existence. In the precedence of monarchs, as arranged in the earlier part of the century, the King of England ranked just below the King of Portugal and next above the King of Sicily. Clearly, had a great combined Catholic crusade ever developed, Protestantism could have been wiped out. 
And then Palmer says, to launch such a crusade was the dream of the King of Spain, Philip II. And he says, it never succeeded. And why will be seen in the next chapter, which is chapter three of his textbook. And that is the end of the quotation. But humanly speaking, in 1560, the close or the end of the Council of Trent, three years away, if one looked at a map of Europe or at the constellation of forces and powers in Europe, one would have said that the Catholics were going to win. But they did not. And to see in some way why they did not is certainly very much part of the history of this spiritual movement that we call the Counter-Reformation. Now there are three relevant chapters in our text on this, and they are chapters 3, 4, and 5. Chapter 3, Sia calls the Triumphant Church, Chapter 4, the Militant Church, and Chapter 5, the Martyred Church. In the Triumphant Church, he treats those countries, Spain, Portugal, Italy, where the Church clearly triumphed and Protestantism made little or no inroads. And the Militant Church, where they're fighting out a battle and what will happen at the end is not clear, and usually what happens is that the country ends up divided. The Germanies are divided and Holland comes out of the Reformation, a Protestant country, but with a large Catholic minority. And then we have the martyred church, the church in England, the church in Scotland, the church in Ireland to some extent. So those chapters should be looked at. And for the remainder of this lecture, I want to say simply, a few words about Catholic Spain and Catholic France. And in the next lecture, we'll talk about the situation in Germany in the 17th century, the Thirty Years' War. And to speak of Catholic Spain involves us somewhat with England. And there is one name, the Gunpowder Plot, which I would imagine that most of you have heard of in some way, or Guy Fawkes Day. I could also have written on the board the Armada, and those are two events in English history which are directly part of or tied to the Reformation. The Armada was Philip II's plan or attempt to conquer England and to bring her back to the faith, and we know that it failed. The gunpowder plot was the discovery of a plot by some to blow up Parliament, and the leader of this little group that was plotting to do this was named Guy Fawkes, and they were caught and executed, and they wanted to remember this, and to this day the English celebrate in some way, not as intensely as they did in the past, Guy Fawkes Day, which is the 5th of November. And if you are in England and walking along the street in the days leading up to Guy Fawkes Day, you may be approached by a small child with what looks to you like a rag doll, and he will ask you for a penny for the guy. And the guy is Guy Fawkes, 
And then on the 5th of November, the people will gather in some part of the village or the town, pile up all these effigies or dolls of Guy Fawkes and burn them, celebrating the triumph of England or of Protestant forces of Protestant England over the Catholics who had planned to blow up their parliament. It had at one time a very religious tone to it. Now it is more simply a social event, an occasion for children to get something for nothing from adults. If we cross the channel from England into France, the situation is very different. If we look at France in the 17th century, France becomes the champion of the Catholic cause. And there is really a flowering, beautiful flowering of Catholicism, of spirituality, of theology in 17th century France. But in the 16th century, the story was very different. And really from 1560 on till 1598, it's not so much questionable, it's just doubtful. One cannot tell what is going to be the religious situation in France. France is wracked at this time with a series of wars, civil wars. And if you look at a text like Palmer, Palmer treats the civil wars in France from a political viewpoint, and he titles his chapter, The Disintegration of France. France was literally falling apart. And the forces that were tearing France apart were religious forces. And there were on the one side the Catholics, who were more or less united under the leadership of a family named the Guise, G-U-I-S-E-S. -E and on the other hand, there were the Protestant forces who were led by the believers in Protestantism who were called the Huguenots. And the battle went back and forth. The Catholics were certainly the overwhelming majority of the people. The Huguenots, on the other hand, were many of the nobles. And the Huguenots had a military power, some political power, but more social power, all out of proportion to their numbers. And in this period, from 1560 to 1590 or to 98, they fight, but they do not fight regular orderly battles. Or you cannot see, here's the Protestant army gathered on this side, and on the other side, say, of a river are the Catholic forces. It's more like marauders or bands that just simply roam the countryside, promoting the one cause or the other. And to make matters worse, they are given to assassination. They assassinate one another, the leaders of one another. And the great families are involved in this. But it's this senseless killing that is eventually going to bring these wars to an end. But there was an event that occurred in the midst of these wars that has burned itself into Protestant memory. It happened on the 23rd of August in the year 1572, and that is the Massacre of St. Bartholomew, or to give it 
Its full name of St. Bartholomew's Day. The 23rd of August is the feast day of St. Bartholomew. And somehow or other, the Queen Mother, Catherine de' Medici, who was Catholic, helped someone to decide to take advantage of the gathering of the Huguenots in Paris to have them massacred or shot. But whatever was behind it, whatever were the causes of this, the effect of St. Bartholomew's massacre was to affect France in a number of ways. These Protestant leaders were massacred and this becomes one of the holy days or holy events in Protestant memory. And Catholics, on the other hand, react against it or try to play it down or to forget about it. Just last year, in his pastoral visit to France, the Holy Father, Pope John Paul, publicly apologized for Catholic participation in this massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day. Something that contributed to the intensity of the feelings on both sides was that when word of it arrived in Rome, the church bells were rung. And if you were on the Catholic side, joy for a Catholic victory or the preservation of the Catholic forces. If you were a Protestant, for the massacre of the Huguenots. But the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre can be taken as typical of what was going on and it led eventually to, you had Protestant forces on the one side, Catholic on the other, and there began to appear a third force in the middle between them, neither Catholic or Protestant in this sense that they were fighting for the triumph of Catholicism or Protestantism, but rather men and women who became tired of the killing and who went by the name of politique or politicians. And the politique thought that what had to be done above all was to gain peace. And the way peace was gained in France during these civil religious wars was through an innovative act, a far-seeing act really, but one which was vastly misunderstood in its time and deep down really never accepted by either side. I'm referring to what is known as the Edict of Nantes, N-A-N-T-E-S. And the Edict of Nantes was the, the attempt of the King of France, who was Henry IV, to bring this senseless fighting to an end and somehow or other to enable the Catholics and the Huguenots to live together in peace of a kind, but really without killing each other without being at each other's throats. And this document, the Edict of Nantes, is of capital importance in the history of France and highly significant for the Reformation because what the king could see was that nothing was being gained by the civil wars. France was being destroyed or consumed in senseless killing and of some concern to the king, she was losing her prestige abroad or had less and less prestige outside her borders. Now Henry IV, or Henry of Bourbon, 
had been a Protestant and he had converted to Catholicism. And that led eventually to problems for him. But he saw both sides and he knew both sides, so he was determined to affect peace of some kind. And he did that through the Edict of Nantes, which gave broad rights to the Huguenots. They had their own towns. They could fortify them. They could have their own armies. They were free to take part fully and completely in the social and the public life of the realm of France. And it worked. It brought peace. The killing stopped. Unfortunately for France, Henry IV himself was the victim of an assassin a few years later. And a few years after the assassination of the king, Cardinal Richelieu will come on the scene and begin to deal with what we might call the Huguenot question again. And then that gets us involved in what will be the subject of the next lecture, the Thirty Years' War in the Germanies. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.